Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports. Uh, we're coming to you live, well, you know, semi-live, Something like uh, in, in, in Manhattan uh, at the ABC building, sitting across from uh, the great Jamal Murphy. Jamal, what's going on? Uh, lot, you know, it's always a lot going on in the, in the sports world or the, or the political slash sports world, whatever it is now. As much as you hate this guy, man, you know, I know a lot of people are saying, what, you know, what the hell we do without him in terms of news cycle, man? <laughs> Subscriptions that. are going out and, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, listen, um, our guest today is um, uh, really a, a, a great writer, a great journalist, a friend, longtime colleague. Uh, the great Howard Beck is our guest today. He's a senior writer for the Bleacher Report. Uh, he's covered the NBA for, wow, damn, for 20 years. Uh, we were colleagues at the New York Times for nine years before he jumped ship and went to the Bleacher Report. Uh, he was at the L.A. Daily News for seven years, and he co-hosts uh, the Full 48 podcast with Jordan Brenner. Hey, Howard, thank you so much, man. Welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Great hearing your voices. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, man, there's a, there's a lot going on, man. There's a lot uh uh, Jamal and I was <laughs> yeah. just going over. There's a lot. There's a lot going on. And you know, NBA season obviously uh, got started last night and gets started. You know, full blast tonight. Um, already, <laughs> you know, for the last night we already had big news with the with the Gordon Hayward, mm. one of the most gruesome injuries I've ever seen. I think. Mm. Um, <laughs> what's your take on that, and, and where the Celtics go uh, from there? The take is pretty straightforward, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. No, you know, it, it's just such a downer. I mean, this was, this was a, an incredible NBA offseason, Bill. You mentioned that 20 years, this is my 21st season I'm heading into, mm-hmm. and I can say with great confidence this is not recency bias or short memory. Right, right. This, was, this was easily the most fascinating offseason, or at least the, the most um, uh, chaotic, I guess, mm-hmm. um, craziest of all time you know we can talk about lebron james in that summer in in 2010 when he jumped ship from cleveland to miami but this was eight all-stars changing teams Mm. eight recent all-stars i'm not even counting Dwayne wade and derrick rose in that in that number i'm I'm counting all the current guys (laughs) and so all that anticipation and then lebron versus Kyrie, we're getting hyped up for that the new look the new look celtics and warriors on ring night and we get gordon hayward's injury in the first six minutes now look far worse and and tough for Gordon Hayward than for for us the viewing public right clearly but it was it was just such a a, a startling and uh, upsetting way to, to to start the season and again much more so for Gordon Hayward and and, and the Celtics and his teammates and, and family um what do you think what do you think Isaiah what do you think Isaiah Thomas was thinking i know he publicly he have to express yeah. horror but what do you think his heart of hearts he may have been thinking Oh, I, <laughs> nobody wants hard that. To say. I, mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, you nobody, don't want anybody. To, I mean, <laughs> especially that. No, you that don't want that. Just, I, I, I yeah, listen, little Isaiah little Thomas uh, helped recruit Gordon Hayward before Isaiah himself got traded to Cleveland for Kyrie. Mm, um, obviously, Isaiah's got a lot of complicated feelings about everything right now because he felt really betrayed by the Celtics uh, dealing him, and 
I understand that. I, I get that. Uh, but look, you know, every, every, in that moment last night, I think what was um, I think most striking um, once you pull back from just the, the gruesomeness of, of the injury and just and the shock of it, it was a very human moment. I mean, you, right. you know, we know that from reports, Isaiah Thomas went and saw Gordon Hayward in the locker room to go express, you know, his concern. We saw Dwayne Wade taking a knee and, and it looked like, uh, you know, saying a few words, maybe praying. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw everybody from both teams, you know, at that moment, it's, everybody's just a, a, a human, and, you know, fellow basketball right. players and just people just concerned for, for Gordon Hayward's health uh, and his career. So uh, yeah, that, that was, I think, you know, the, the main takeaway um, as, as far as the, the reactions go, you know, beyond that, you know, obviously look, we watch the game because we want to see how these teams stack up against each other. And so it's only natural in the wake of it. You start wondering, what does this mean for the Celtics? Right. And it's fair to start talking about that um, as, right. as, as harsh as it seems, because, you know, a guy just went down with a, a really tough injury. Uh, you know, the Celtics always had on haul this season, I think, in terms of just trying to reestablish who they were and identity. Um, there were only four returning players. I mean, it's been lost, I think, in a lot of the discussions. Everybody's got them penciled in as the number two team in the East right. at minimum. But they turned over 11 out of 15 roster spots, including four-fifths of the starting lineup. It's a brand-new team. This is not the team that won 53 games and had the top seed in the East last right. year. I didn't realize It's a that. different team. Wow, and now you've just taken, by some people's estimation, the best, uh, the most important addition. Um, you know, Kyrie Irving is as phenomenal as a scorer he is. There are people who would tell you around the NBA that, you know what, Gordon Hayward was actually the more important pickup because of his all-around game right. and his size, the positions, uh, the versatility he brings to the table so you know where does that leave them um you know they're still really talented with Kyrie at their core but they're relying a lot on youth Marcus Smart's only a couple years in his career and and Jalen Brown is in year two and you know Jason Tatum is going to be playing a major role as a rookie and there's the it's a young group uh in important places and it's a very new group as I say so it's, it's going to be – they're going to have their ups and downs this season. Whether they still finish uh, – they'll still probably be a top-four team in the East. Which, isn't, which isn't hard. Yeah, no, which <laughs> no. isn't hard. Right, but Is Washington it, and Toronto thank God are, are kind of right. – you know, I mean, Washington and Toronto are the teams that you expect are right there – Regardless, and, and Milwaukee is, is 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 rising quickly, so there is the potential for Boston to slip. Let me ask you this: I mean, a couple. I want to kind of hone in on this whole injury. You know, I'm going to hone in on the McCarr. You know, so uh, two things. First of all, I'm thinking Kyrie is going to get what he asked for. So, okay, you want to be the man, you want to carry the team, and he was kind of thinking, you know, oh well, I've got Jason, I got it all lined up. He said, no, now you, this is what you wanted. You got it. You carry this team. This, this, you didn't want to be in LeBron's shadow. I, I mean, I think if LeBron were in, in Boston and this kind of happened, people would not be that panicked because you still got LeBron, you know. But now the question is, okay, Kyrie, can you, can you carry this team? Can you be the guy who, despite double teams, triple teams, can you do what LeBron did? Um, so that's my first that's not a question, but observation. But I was also thinking, how did you feel about the trade? And are you, are you, you know, it clearly uh, Isaiah was really hurt. Isaiah Thomas was really hurt by this, and he still brings it up. Do you see where he's coming from, and what did you think of the trade in the first place? Well, let me address the Isaiah part no. first. Uh, you know, this has been a, a, a really um, intense discussion over the last couple of years around the NBA about the, the idea 
and the discussions of loyalty. Mm-hmm. What does loyalty in sports mean? Is there any such thing as loyalty? And I bring this up because when Kevin Durant leaves Oklahoma for the Warriors, when you know, uh, and any number of other players have forced their way out of situations, fans react very intensely, <laughs> emotionally, feeling this this betrayal, right. and yet. When a team makes a trade, we just say it's just business. And so I bring that up because you, we're seeing both sides of that coin frequently now. Uh, if you feel as a Thunder fan betrayed by Kevin Durant leaving, okay, I get it. You've got an emotional attachment to this player that you've been rooting hard for and buying his jersey, putting his poster on your wall, all of that. Same with Boston fans with Isaiah. Um, but your team traded Isaiah to upgrade with Kyrie Irving. And in that case, fans are fine with it. <laughs> but, right, but Kevin right. Durant's not allowed to leave on his own. Um, now, when you're the player, it, it, it does feel different. And this is why players, I think, feel more and more emboldened to take these things into their own hands because they know they're vulnerable. They know that they have, to an extent, when they're under contract, no control over their fate once they're signed. And you can be traded. And Isaiah Thomas, on an emotional level, he understand, look, he understands as much as anybody that it is a business and that he himself could have left next summer as a free agent right. if they weren't going to, quote, back up the Brinks truck, as he was, was saying. But his, his emotional reaction, I totally, absolutely understand. Right. He gave everything he had to that organization, and they gave everything they had to him, too. He right. wasn't an all-star and an MVP candidate until he got there, until he right. was acquired by Danny Ainge and coached by Brad Stevens and put in situations to get the best out of him. He didn't have that in Phoenix. He didn't have that in Sacramento. So it is a two-way street. And in my mind, the ledger is clear. You know, They provided the opportunity and the best chance to succeed. He took advantage of it. Right. Everybody gave what they had to that they were committed to in, in this partnership between team and player. So I don't think anybody owes anybody anything, frankly, because at the end of it, they do have to make the best decision for their, their franchise long-term. And when they looked at Isaiah Thomas and his size and his health and his free agency and the contract demands that would come behind it, they made a, a pragmatic and, yes, kind of cold-hearted decision. And, yeah, Isaiah Thomas gave them everything. And he played the day after his sister's tragic death. And he played through injury and he he gave everything and you know it, you, you can't dismiss any of that and i understand his his feelings but uh, yeah, you know it, this is like, this it, is it, the it, bottom line of, of, of sports right like you said it's a, you know it's a business everybody knows that both sides know it um before i before i get get away from this injury i just want to get uh, see if you've heard anything about the timetable for the injury because when you yeah. see something that gruesome you, you can't fathom someone coming back in the same season but I mean, the NBA season is a long season. Right. Have you heard anything about that? No, I think it's too soon to know whether Gordon Hayward, um, whether we see him possibly in the playoffs or something, if they had a, a deep run. Um, my my gut says no, right. that this is the kind of thing that's going to take a while. I, you know, I think there was more than one injury there. Um, wow. and, and so, you know, I, you know we'll, we'll find out in the days okay. to come. So, uh, yeah, too too soon to know on that. Um, but, but uh, Bill, you, you mentioned it earlier, you know, this is an opportunity for Kyrie Irving to, to show whether or not he's truly a franchise player. And that was something I alluded to when I was writing about uh, the trade a while back, which is that, you know, Kyrie Irving wanted to get out of LeBron's shadow. I don't understand that exactly. I mean, I kind of do, and I kind of don't, you know, like write it out one more year and see if you can get back to the finals, and try to win another championship. But his desire at age 25 was to have 
a team that was more structured around him. And now he has that even more than he could have anticipated. And we'll, we'll see how he handles that responsibility because the one knock on Kyrie, there are a couple of them, but one of the primary ones has been that he's not been a leader right. and that he hasn't been the kind of player who, uh, you know, elevated everyone around him. He's great at getting his own, but would he play in a more of a team format and keep the ball moving and elevate his teammates? We saw it last night. He was great with it last night. I thought that was a really promising beginning for him. And, and we'll see if, if he evolves into that more well-rounded player and leader out on the court now. Can we get the Knicks thing out the way? <laughs> it, it just, just, it just kind of That could take three hours, Bill. <laughs> no, I thought it would take like two minutes. <laughs> right. I mean, really. You know, what? what, what I mean, th- this is so like – because our ratings soar whenever you say anything Knicks. So we say, okay, Knicks, 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 Knicks. But, it's, but I mean, it's, it's this, this eternal um, existential hopelessness. But that's what Knicks fans like. They, you know, they, they like that. Jamal, you know, y'all you, like, you know, you I like that. I used to that. be a Knicks fan now. Oh, oh, oh here we go. You know, but anyway, so, so let's, let's just kind of deal with the Knicks. You know, <laughs> Phil Jackson, one of the greatest hustles of all time. I mean, one of the great hustles of all time. He's gone. Carmelo's gone. So so give us a little synopsis about the Knicks. <laughs> well, boy, where to begin? Well, just um, at the end, because <laughs> we're already at the <laughs> This shit is over. I'm sorry. This is over before I, it begins, right? right? Let's, <laughs> all right. For, let's, start, let's start with this. Let's yeah. start with a, a, a simple basic premise. The Knicks and Carmelo Anthony needed to move on from each other and should have three years ago. Right. Um, and certainly should have once they knew that, that Porzingis was going to be the future and that the timeline in terms of their ages of Carmelo and, and Porzingis did not line up. So, you know, I, I don't think this was ever a, a relationship that re- really worked very well for the franchise or for the player. And, you know, Carmelo had chances to walk away in 2014 to go to teams in, in better winning situations, and he didn't. And then the Knicks had a chance to kind of reset. And Phil Jackson had even said, Hey, if he leaves, that's fine. We'll just we'll go another direction. And then Phil flinched and gave him a near max deal with a no trade clause. Uh, so they were always leading toward this. I, I, I never thought that there was any other conclusion other than there was going to be a breakup, especially once you saw that Porzingis was going to be your future, and you needed to start building a team that made sense around him instead of a third now thirty three year old Carmelo. How they handled it, obviously terrible. The deal that they made, not good. Um, but they are where they are now. They, they, they have a clearer vision of what they're doing. I don't think a lot of the, the decisions they've made have been great. I think the Hardaway contract is as, as bad as most people think it is. I mean, around mm. the league, it, it's, it's viewed uh, pretty badly. Mm. The trade is not viewed well around the league. Um, Frank Nielakina, the, the rookie point guard, uh, yeah. actually does have a lot of fans around the league. So yeah. you've got some, some potentially some, some you know, new pieces, some foundational pieces to build around with Porzingis, Neil Aquina, Hernan Gomez. Um, I, there's, there's at least, I think, some hope in some young players there. But the salary cap is still a problem for them because of some of the decisions they've made. The deal, for, the deal uh, that they made with Carmelo, getting back Dennis Cantor and Doug McDermott in the second-round pick was not enough. And, um, you know... The, the, the Knicks continue to be the Knicks. I have a I have a question, a New York City question. Who who's in better shape, the Nets or the Knicks? <laughs> That's a phenomenal question. <laughs> that is a, a fantastic. Well, you know, look, short term this season is because I've been playing around with this whole idea of like, are the Nets going to ruin that pick for the Cavaliers? Because I think they're going to. I think, I think so the Nets too. are going to be just good enough that that pick that the, that the Cavs got 
in the Kyrie trade is not going to end up being top three. It's going to end up being like fifth or sixth because the Nets are going to leapfrog all these tanking teams. The Bulls and Hawks and Pacers are all tanking, and the Knicks aren't very good, and the the Nets might even surpass them this year. But long-term, Jamal, Mm -hmm. um, I will always lean toward the team that – have a an identifiable star right. or star in the making, and the Knicks have that. So as of this moment in time, I'm going to say the Knicks have the advantage because they have Porzingis and they have all their picks. Now right. the Nets right. are only out one more pick, this one coming up in 2018, and after that the Nets will have all their picks again, so that's good. And they've got some interesting pieces like D'Angelo Russell. You know, mm-hmm. maybe this, this second life for him in, in Brooklyn will – turn to, uh, you know, he'll become the star that, that, that the Lakers expected when they drafted him. And they've got, you know, some other good pieces that they've, they've brought in. Alan Crabb and Karis LeVert, I think, is really promising. But uh, Porzingis puts the Knicks ahead in that race. Right. I also feel like this is a big year. Tell me if you agree with this. I think it's a big year for Porzingis. Not that he needs to put up, like, all-star numbers per se, but just to show that he is that guy. Um, we know he has that talent. I mean, seven three guy can do any you know everything on the court. But well, I mean, you never. I mean, he has the talent, you know. But can he stay healthy and all that stuff? Mm. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. I mean, um, he's got to stay healthy. He has to continue to grow and evolve. He has to have. We we haven't seen yet whether he can handle the burden of being a number one guy. I mean, he put up some nice numbers, had some great games playing off of Carmelo and where defenses were focused on Carmelo, the right. burden is on Carmelo, the pressure's on Carmelo. That's a different situation than this. Now, they needed to get to this point. They needed to, to, to see whether he can yeah. handle this, and, yeah. and we're going to see now. Well, the answer is but, no. We know yeah, that. the jury's still out. <laughs> no. no, I mean, the jury's come back. I mean, but, but just, we haven't had a chance. We've got to give, oh, give, give him a year. Let's see, see that's what he the, does. Nick, the only yeah, person give, who loves it is... Give him a season as, as the focal oh, Come on, Bill. Give him a season, Bill. Come on. We, we've given y'all since 1969. <laughs> how, how many seasons do you guys want, man? That's what Joe Lewis told, Joe Lewis told uh, Billy Kahn. You know, I, I, I'm just going to assume some of our young... Listeners, but so we've heard of Joe Lewis. Joe so. Lewis and Billy Kahn. So Billy Kahn was like beating Joe Lewis. I mean, he was like for like ten, like eleven rounds. He was like beating the hell out of Joe Lewis, and then he tried to like knock him out and got knocked out. So they were on the show later on. Billy last. So so the host said, "Well, Billy, what's one thing that you ever want to have?" He said, "You know what? I really wish I would have just loved to know what it felt to be the heavyweight champion." And Joe Lewis said, "You, you, you had it for eleven rounds to know what to do with it." <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, <laughs> but listen, what's, 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 you kind of have That's to be story. there, you know. But what about <laughs> what about um, uh, Oklahoma? What do you think? Uh, you know, because Carmelo's always the kind of guy, man. If he's in like the Olympic situation, I mean, he could be great when he's in the sort of surrounded by you know Kobe Bryant. All the, what do you think it's going to be like for him, Westbrook, and uh, George, Paul George, and Paul George in uh, yeah. OKC? I- yeah, it's 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 funny, Bill. The the whole Olympic mellow thing that, that, that like there's this other guy, Olympic mellow. Olympic mellow is a guy who exists <laughs> for mellow. two weeks every four years. <laughs> right. You know, the, you could, the, the idea that that's an example of how he can you know uh, you know reel in his own game and and, and be a more of a complimentary guy. Yeah, because it's only for two weeks <laughs> every four years, so you can beat like. You know, uh, you know, South Korea. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's, not, it's it's not the same as as his NBA career, where it's an 82 game season, and he has always been the focal point of his teams. He's always been the the, the leading scorer, the leading uh, shot taker, the guy who has the ball in his hands the most. 
So this is different, and it is a challenge for him. But he's 33, right. and he's clearly the third best of their three stars. Mm. You know, Russell Westbrook and Paul George are younger, right. and they're both just better overall players right now. Mm. Um, so does Carmelo recognize that? Is he? How much is he going to give? I mean, that's one of the most – there, that team is one of the most fascinating plots of the season because it's, it's not, not just on Carmelo, by the way. Russell Westbrook set the all-time record. I know we don't probably do much advanced stats on your show, Bill. You're old school, but <laughs> we're going to start uh, a stat, a stat called usage rate, which is how many possessions you use while you're on the court. And, and Russell Westbrook used 42 percent of, of his team's possessions. While he was on the court last year, that's the most ever. More than Jordan ever did, more than Allen Iverson, more than Kobe, more than anybody in the history of the NBA. So Russell Westbrook, as the point guard, has to has to to now do something different. (laughs) He can't he can't be taking all the shots he did last year, dominating the ball the way he did. Carmelo can't dominate the ball the way he has over the course of his career. And Paul George, who's used to being number one, so all three of those guys have to figure out how this works and. It's a little like when Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, KG right. came together, except that those three guys had very clearly complementary games and were all three a little bit later in their careers. So there was a recognition that they could do more if they sacrificed um, having had a lot of heartbreak or, or fallen short on their own. I don't know if these three guys are in that same position, but you know, we'll see. There's a, there's a lot on Westbrook to, to adjust, on Carmelo to adjust, and on Billy Donovan to make it work, to, to get the most out of those three guys. Um, I think it's going to take a while. I, I think they're going to be fine. I think they're going to be really good. Right. I don't know they're going to be good enough to beat the Warriors, but nobody is. Right. So. <laughs> no, no shame in that. Right, right, right. But, right. Yeah, I mean, so, so moving on to another subject, uh, getting to the political stage of, uh, of Bill Roden on sports. It happens <laughs> more and more <laughs> now <laughs> uh, <laughs> with, with all that's going on. But obviously, we know what's going on with the NFL, um, you know, the kneeling, the, pro- the anthem protests. The NBA, uh, while never taking a stand to that extent, like in ter- terms of the anthem, they have they have, you know, been vocal. Obviously, yeah. the ESPYs, right. uh, you know, they made they've made statements. LeBron has made statements. Carmelo's made statements. Do you see? What do you see? Foresee if anything uh, this season in the NBA? Um, do you see like an anthem protest? Do Do you think they'll just stick to doing it other ways? And and how do you how do you think? Uh, Adam Silver would respond to some sort of protest? Yeah, it's a really good question, Jamal. And I feel like the NBA, and by, when I say the NBA, I don't even mean just like the league officer, Adam Silver, at this point. I think the league as a whole, players, coaches, uh, front offices, the commissioner's office, I think they just have a bit of a, of a different philosophy here, which right. is that they – First of all, they recognize their social responsibility and they embrace it. And I think this league always has. Guys have been outspoken and the league has absolutely supported their outspokenness, whether it was the Miami Heat doing the photo with their hoodies uh, in recognition or or, uh, in in sympathy with with Trayvon Martin and his family years ago, um, whether it was Carmelo, LeBron, Chris Paul, Dwayne Wade at the ESPYs a year ago, July, whether it was the guys wearing the I Can't Breathe t-shirts for warm-ups and the league deciding not to to fine or anything, even though it was a a uniform violation. The league has embraced and supported players and coaches, clearly, because we've seen Stan Van Gundy and Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, for them to all express themselves 
as strongly and as, as uh, you know, in, intensely as they feel like they need to. So, so this league is different than the NFL anyway. Right. And I think maybe the reason – I'm speculating here. Maybe the reason the NFL players have gone the, the route they've gone with taking knees that, that maybe they don't feel as free to express themselves in other ways that might piss off league officials. But the NBA hasn't had that. They, they know the NBA supports them. The players know the NBA supports them when it comes to expressing themselves. Until contract time. Whatever. Until negotiate, well, until collective bargaining time. But, but that's business, Bill. Like, I, right, I, right. These things are separate to me. Right. There's a business right. relationship. And then, and then when the CBA is over, and right now it's over and they're all making out great. Both sides are making out great. That's why this thing was resolved without even the hint of, of, a, of a labor stoppage. When, when, when they don't have that in front of them, when the labor deal is done, and it is right now, these guys are pretty much on the same page, I think, uh, in terms of how they operate and how they em- embrace their um, societal responsibilities. So it's different. Now, when it comes to the anthem, it's interesting. I, I don't know whether – like, it would be really powerful. I've thought about this, and I've thought about this a lot last year in the wake of, of, of Colin Kaepernick's um, demonstrations – because that happened in the summer, and the NBA was, was going to gear up soon, and I thought, man, how powerful would that be if all these NBA players on opening night took a knee? Right. You know, how powerful could that be with, the, with this league that's 75%-plus African-American in any given season? Like, this is the league we most associate with African-American, uh, uh, the African-American community in this country. Like, you could see where people might think that they have an even greater responsibility or that they should even take the lead in this. Right. And so I wondered how they would, would approach it. And the way they approached it was that Adam Silver and Michelle Roberts, executive director of the MBPA, got together and wrote a joint letter to the to players saying, we're going to do all these other things. And it, it, kind of, it kind of diffused the situation in a way, that they decided that what they were going to do was continue to be outspoken, and support each other in, in that, and then do all these community functions and bring together um, police and neighborhoods and all these other events. And that's what they did last season. And this season, it seems like there's just a, a continuation of that. And I think the, the philosophy, and again, not just the league, but the players too, with the union backing this, is to say, you know, demonstrations, protests are, are, can, can be effective. And there's certainly... Um, provocative and to get people talking. But what we're going to do is going to be this more constructive approach. I don't say more constructive, a, 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 just a hands-on approach where we're going we're gonna to do. Uh, we're going we're gonna to speak out. We're going to act. We're going to be involved in our communities. And that's the way we're going to try to make an impact instead of taking the knee, which, listen, on a political level, on a business level, I can see it. We see how the NFL has become a, a, a political football, so to speak, um, <laughs> And the NBA has stayed out of that particular um, – that, that, that they've not made themselves a target that way. And so, you know, guys are still speaking out. Greg Popovich just went after the president as hard as anybody has right. this week. And there's been – you know, the, the White House isn't firing back at Greg Popovich. I don't think, uh, I don't think they want that fight. Mm-hmm. But if players start taking a knee, now – you know, you, you you know you can alienate part of your fan base, and and maybe it's counterproductive. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking out loud here. Like, could it be counterproductive? Do you do you uh, win more hearts and minds and support for your concerns about police brutality or any other um, 
uh, you know, civil rights issues? Do you win more hearts and minds by just engaging with communities and and having these events that the NBA has done and speaking out than you would if you took the knee, which is easily misconstrued, has been politicized, has been completely, uh, you know, uh, distorted. The, the whole cause has been distorted because it's been characterized as a, a, a you know, protest of the anthem or of soldiers or it's, it's somehow uh, unpatriotic, all this other nonsense. And the NBA has avoided that. And maybe that's to their benefit overall. Yeah. Um, our guest is the great Howard Beck. He's a senior writer for the Bleacher Report. And uh, he's a veteran of 21 years covering the NBA. Uh, my colleague at the New York Times for about nine years. Uh, before, we, before we let you go, I mean, you said a lot there. And I, I'm... I'm I'm digesting all this because I still quite don't buy the idea of the NBA as a more enlightened league. I mean, I you know I walk through the I walk through the NBA office, you know, and I don't see a whole lot of black people. I mean, I see you know, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the legal department and the marketing advertising. It's still pretty white now. It's still overwhelmingly white, and it's all black where they need it to be black, which is in the field yeah. and the labor. I mean, so it's not like they're doing anybody any favors. And even when, you know what I'm saying? I mean, we have to look at that. that is, it is business. Well, it ain't like they giving out gifts. Right. I mean, these guys, there's a direct correlation between a whole lot of money they're making and these young black guys who are making it. And it's almost pragmatically, even when it gets down to Sterling, you know, they want to get rid of that guy anyway. They want to get rid of Sterling anyway. And so you're getting to playoffs, and you start hearing these guys start rumbling about, well, maybe we won't play. I don't think you have to be Gandhi to say, you know, <laughs> I think that, you know, let's get rid of the guy we don't like anyway, and let's do do whatever. So, I mean, I'm not trying to, but I'm just saying they, they say these leagues are all that enlightened. I think it's all pragmatic and it's business, you know. Um, right, and it could be just compared to the NFL. Well, anything compared <laughs> to the NFL. I mean, <laughs> you know, but, but even the NFL, you know, I, I was at the uh, Goodell, you know, the owners' meetings and coming back from the press conference. And, you know, these guys are over, they're, they're, these owners – 99.9% of who are white it's, it, I think this is one of the most unique um, places in our society where in most places where I'm involved in journalism probably in law and every, black folks are on the periphery if you go to your major law firms real estate firms in, in, in the news departments if you go to any news department you know the, the, the black folks are on the periphery you know what kind of when you look at the NFL and NBA Black folks are front and center. Young black men and women are the engines that drive this thing, and it's is the most. But they've been used to these people just not saying anything because they give them hush money, they give them a lot of money, and you know build your mom a house and that you know. But now this group of millennials, it's kind of like what Ali. Whenever you get to a point where you say, "Well, money is not enough," and in a capitalist society, when you say money is not enough. That freaks people out. Right. You know, that freaks people out. So um, I'm just, you know, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm saying, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but I guess I'm just saying I think that when I, I heard you talk and I, I, I hear you and I'm like all that, but I'm not willing to, like, give them all well, that kind of credit. I mean, it's pretty it's yeah. pretty pragmatic. You know what I mean? No, Bill, Bill, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with you on a, on a lot of that. And I'm not saying that, the, you know, the NBA is, you know, this 
great, you know, beacon of progressivism necessarily. I mean, it's, it's, it's a friendly plantation. You know, they, they give them three meals a day. You know, they can go out on the weekend, just make sure you're back by, 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 by midnight, you know. You know, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a friendly as opposed well, to NFL, a little harsher, you know. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would just raise a, a, couple, a couple quick points that are just kind of worth, you know, keeping in mind within the discussion. You know, one is that, the NFL is obviously a low bar, right? Like being right. more progressive than the NFL <laughs> is is not like that. That's not the gauge. That's not that. That's easy. But yeah. that said, listen, I, I think Richard Lapchick's annual uh, diversity studies generally give the NBA good grades in terms of uh, diversity of both race and gender in I think the league office as well as individual team front offices. Um, but a lot of that's on the non basketball side. I would say that NBA absolutely should be subject to great scrutiny when it comes to the fact that it has declined. And I wrote about this a few years ago. It's yeah, that was a great story. In the number of bla- yeah. oh, thank you. But So it's declined in the number of black head coaches. Um, our good friend Mark Spears has written about the decline in, or just the scarcity of, of black GMs and team presidents. And that remains a concern. Although the Knicks, who we all love to, to smack around, right now have a, a black team president and a, a black GM. And I, I think right. our – not only the only team in the league um, who have two African-Americans in, in those two positions, I think probably the only the, the first one in history, most likely. Well, but remember again, remember, how, when, remember uh, when they had Anuka, they had Anuka, yes. Isaiah, and Steve Mills, you know, and, and, yeah, they, and they screwed sure, that up. You're right. <laughs> yeah. And I, told, was, I told them, they screwed up. How could, you, how could you guys screw that up, man? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, mean, I told this to Anuka, <laughs> Isaiah, and, and um, uh, Steve. So, man, how could yeah. you guys screw this up? You guys have the, the the top three people in an organization, and you guys kind of screw it up. I mean, how could you do that? You know. Anyway, that's another podcast. But go ahead. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. As I say, the Knicks are three hour discussion every time we bring them up. Right. No question. Um, in whatever in whatever context. Uh, but anyway, I, I just I think the NBA does a, a good job in certain areas. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to argue, as I say, that it's this great you know. Speaking of progressivism, overall, it is a business, and they, they certainly have much, much room to improve in a number of areas. Uh, but I just think that in the context of this discussion today yeah. about pro athletes and, and the position that they can uh, – the, the advantages that they have in terms of their platform and how they use that platform and whether they're comfortable using that platform, the NBA has made it absolutely a, a supportive environment for LeBron James – and Chris Paul, and DeMar DeRozan, and John Wall, and all these other guys who have spoken out, and the coaches too, that that they know they can they can speak their mind and use their platform to you know advance a discussion that is of vital importance to everybody, without worrying about somebody coming and saying you know what your job's at at risk or your place in this, in this league is at risk or you're going to be subject to some kind of sanction no one at ever at any point has has expressed that and to the contrary they have been more emboldened along the way to speak their minds and and Stan Van Gundy made a comment a few weeks back that I absolutely believe uh 100% is is is, is correct that if there were a Colin Kaepernick of the NBA that player would would be on a roster right now he would not be blackballed the way that Kaepernick has been in the NFL. And I believe that's the case. And I know people will bring up Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. That was 25, 30 years ago. I don't think the same thing would happen today. Different context, different time, different commissioner. 
Um, I, I, the, you know, so for all whatever faults the NBA may have, Bill, and I, I'm not going to disagree with you on, on a lot of what you've raised. I just think that when it comes to political speech and being able to to engage and and, and to exercise their social conscience and use the platform they have, the NBA has been near perfect in the last few years in supporting these guys in, in stark, stark contrast to the NFL. Well, we'll let you have the last word on that. Uh, not, <laughs> not that I agree. Appreciate that. But because you're our guest and uh, you're a good brother and I you know, respect you. Um, but, you know, it's, it's room for debate. Um, one thing I, I, I will say, I think that they should replace the national anthem because I think this whole problem is having the national anthem for a game. I think they should replace it with the Funkadelics, One Nation under a Groove. <laughs> that'd be good. I think Especially in the NBA, that'd be good. Yeah, that would be great. Like, one Nation. <laughs> hey, Howard, we're getting ridiculous now, but thank you. So, <laughs> hey, I, I, I guess it's been, it's been Howard Beck, just a truly a great guy and really just a tremendous journalist, tremendous a reporter uh, for the Bleach Report. Listen to his podcast called um, Full 48, the Full 48 podcast. Hey, Howard, thank you so much, man. We're going to, as we get deeper into the season, we're going to call you back. And because um, I guarantee you, something's going to happen. Oh, please. Something's no, going to happen. Please. Yeah. I, I'll be interested to see, Bill. I'll be interested to see that myself. I am curious to see if anybody takes it to a different step, mm-hmm. to a different level, and how the league responds to that. But, um, yeah, it, it's uh, you never know. But hey, look, one way or another, we will have much more to discuss this season for certain, both on and off the court. And uh, yeah, I, I would be happy to come back anytime. Love chatting with you guys, and uh, you know, keep up the great work, Bill. You are uh, one of my all-time idols, and uh, working with you at the times, of course, was uh, was was a great honor as well. So uh, appreciate you having me on the cat on the podcast. Hey, man, thank thank you so much, Howard, and we'll talk to you very soon. <laughs> Thanks a lot, and Howard. Coming up when we're coming back. We're going to have Jill E. Pilgrim, uh, who's the acting executive director and general counsel for the Track and Field Athletes Association. And she's a founder and president of the Center for the Protection of Athletes' Rights. We're, going to, we're not going to let you off the hook with this. We're going to keep on just, you know, driving, hitting this stuff home. So we'll be right back with uh, some scintillating discussion. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. Welcome back. To Bill Roden on Sports here with uh, Jamal Murphy, Midtown Manhattan, the ABC building. And we're here with uh, uh, another phenomenal guest and a good friend, and a, uh, I'm not an old friend, a friend who I've known for a long time. Uh, but I'm here with uh, attorney Jill Pilgrim, uh, who's the um, founder and president for the Center uh, for the Protection of Athletes' Rights, which is, oh, you found that a long time ago, right? Mm hmm. In 1994, I started that. I remember that when you did that. Uh, And um, she's also the acting executive director and general counsel of Track and Field uh, Athletes Association. Uh, Welcome to the show and welcome to the studio, Jill Pilgrim. Thank you very much, uh, Bill and Jamal, for having me. Yes, I play. What does E stand for? Oh, no, we're not going there. <laughs> well, the, the first question, <laughs> the, first, the first question, so why do you use it if you can't? 
it's professional. Yeah, it just you know it 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 just distinguishes me from all the other Jill Pilgrims who don't have an E in the middle. You know, right. so okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, well, let me start with a softball, a softball question. <laughs> no such thing as a softball. Question. Uh, so anyway, so tell me about um. You were uh, you were uh, you went to Princeton. Mm -hmm. uh, you were an athlete. You were a sprinter, mm -hmm. runner at Princeton. Mm -hmm. So this stuff has been dear and dear. Let me just ask you before we get into sort of the work. I mean, this 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 stuff is front and center. Athletes' rights right. is really front and center. Um, unfortunately, I always think the track and field athletes are kind of always lowest on the on the totem pole. But how did you? First of all, why don't we start from the top? What do you make now of this sort of this the, the quote unquote athletes? I don't know if we call it empowerment yet, but but clearly, uh, professional black athletes um, are really becoming in the forefront of this sort of cultural political battle. What what do you make of that? And how how is this developing? Are we? Do you think we're at the beginning of a new paradigm or a paradigm shift? Well, of course, being a track and field athlete, I wouldn't call it a new paradigm given uh, John Carlos and Tommy yeah. Smith. So uh, if you know your well, history. But I, mean, <laughs> but I mean, collectively, I mean, you had, you had, you've always had individuals. You've had right. Ali, mm -hmm. but you didn't have all boxers. Right. You had Smith and Carlos, uh, but you didn't have, you know, and also they're individuals. But, but anyway, but the original question, do you think that this is a sort of paradigm, a paradigm shift? Well, I think it's very encouraging and very positive. I mean, it's about time, I would say. Right. Mm -hmm. Like a resurgence, maybe, you know, because there was a dull period where you didn't see any kind of protest or pushback from athletes. Like you, you always call it the Jordan era. Right? <laughs> he, he wanted to right. stay as far away from it as possible. Mm -hmm. And now, for whatever reason, um, you know, in the last few years or so, uh, athletes are becoming more outspoken on the issue, more socially conscious, um, which I think that's where it starts. I think you got to see what's going on, understand what's going on, um, be able to decipher it. And as you do that, then you you have no choice but to speak. And I think that's what's been happening uh, recently. So, um, and, it, and where in you know back in back in the day for me at least back in the day uh, that was it was a more common theme. Well, I also think there's something going on, um, a la Tra Trayvon Martin which is that this younger generation has grown up in a time where they've always seen black athletes, black doctors, right. black lawyers, right. and so they don't necessarily have that historical perspective. So it may be that they feel empowered and they will learn by speaking out how, whether or not that empowerment exists or not. Um, so that, that remains to be seen. Yeah. So why why did you start um, with with the, you know, the the Center for Protection of Athletes' Rights? Why why did you start that? What what was there some trigger? Was there some inspiration that that led to you to to, uh, to found that that organization? Well, as you noted, I was a track and field athlete, and then I went to Princeton University, and I ultimately uh, attended Columbia Law School. And one of the things that, that happens, I'm sure it happens to doctors too, you know, you go to a cocktail party and people start asking you, oh, I got this pain. Uh, the minute I became a lawyer, everybody, I, uh, I knew a lot of athletes and they would come to me and ask me to do legal work for them. 
So I didn't actually really start out expecting or thinking about being a sports lawyer. I didn't really know that that mm. was a career option. Mm. I, I came out of law school. I was a tax attorney and then a corporate attorney. Um, I happened to work for the law firm Wilkie, Farr & Gallagher, which represented the owners of Major League Baseball. I was not much of a baseball fan, but it, it was an era in uh, mid-'80s when associates, i.e. new lawyers who just graduated from law school, were not expected to bring in business. You're just expected to do the work. Mm. So I had a lot of friends who were Olympic athletes or future Olympic athletes, aspiring Olympic athletes coming to me and saying, hey, could you look at this contract? Could you help me with this? And it took a while, but eventually I realized that there was a need and then I started getting calls from parents of kids in high school and junior high school where their child was being excluded from the team for some reason, some eligibility. So I started seeing that there was really a need. And so that resulted in the birth of the Center for the Protection of Athletes' Rights. Because I realized I couldn't do it all myself, I needed to recruit other lawyers to help. So the model is that we recruit and educate pro bono attorneys, uh, attorneys to do volunteer work for athletes, coaches, sports people who have sports-related legal issues, mm -hmm. um, but it's based on low income. So if they can't, don't have the financial means to hire an, their own attorney. So now, but now you got the second organization, uh, the Track and Field Athletic Athletes Association. Uh, how old is that, and why did you form a second a second organization? Okay, to be clear, I did not form the oh. Track and Field Athletes Association. Um, they formed um, their own association. Those are the professional track and field athletes, mm -hmm. and I'll explain what that means in a moment. Um, but they formed their own association in 2010, and uh, they approached me a couple months ago, knowing that I had previously worked as the general counsel and director of business affairs of USA Track and Field, and was a former track and field athlete. They've been, the athletes have been trying to advance the rights of uh, their own rights collectively, and we're having difficulty being athletes and working their organization and making it functional. So they approached me a few months ago, we negotiated, and they basically said, we really need your help. We need to bring in some professionals and people who have been in the business world and the legal world. We're suffering, and can you help mm. us? So I'm, I'm doing this on a part-time basis um, and uh, just got started about three weeks ago. Wow. What, what are some of the stuff that you're going to be doing? I mean, what, you know, again, track and field athletes in this country are, are tough in terms of the pecking order. What are some of the things that they've got that, 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 they're, that they're pushing up against, I mean, that people would really care about? Well, first of all, as I was discussing with Jamal before the start of this broadcast, most people don't understand that track and field athletes are professional athletes. Those who are not in high school, competing in high school or college, uh, they have the option of turning professional and competing in events for prize money, much like tennis players and golf golfers. So it's the same concept. Um, the unlike tennis and well I guess now tennis and golf is in the Olympics so uh, the thing about track and field is track and field was originally in the ancient Olympics and has always been right. an amateur sport so at the point when the amateurs were allowed to receive money and still compete in the Olympics 
i.e. become fat professionals, the, um, the, I, the perception of the general public didn't change. They mm. still think of the track and field athletes as right. amateurs. Right. So there are people right. who earn their living um, as track and field athletes every day, and it's a struggle. And I should make the point that it's not just runners, jumpers, and throwers. We have race walkers, and we have long-distance runners who do marathons and 10Ks. And so it's track and field, long-distance running, and race walking. So if Colin Kaepernick comes into your office, <laughs> what, what, how would you represent, how would you advise Colin Kaepernick? How would you... Um, you know, if he came and said, "Listen, I, you know, I need your help. I'm doing this thing." How would you? How would you advise him? What would you? What would be your strategy? Well, first of all, it would be depend on what he's asking me. You know, if he's saying, uh, "I'm hiring you to get me the best NFL contract you can get me," uh, I'm going to advise him differently than if he's coming in and saying, "I want to use my platform as an NFL player to speak out about uh, issues in the black uh, and minority community." Mm -hmm. Now, what about the the current case that he's that he's bringing now? Yeah, the grievance. Um, you know, as just just looking at it, you know, from an attorney perspective, collusion, right? Uh, he's bringing that against against the league, against the NFL. Um, obviously, that means uh, that the that a team had to collude with at least one other team, or that the a team had to collude with one other or with the league. Or the league had to collude with one other team. Um, it's not just, uh, and, and it takes actual evidence. It takes, you know, they have to show that this actually happened. It can't be just like, well, you know, his stats were better, and he should have been signed. I mean, how tough a case do you, you know, just, just, you know, generally as an attorney, do you th that sounds like a tough case to win. So one of the good things, I'm not a litigator, but one of the things you learn after 32 years of practicing law is one of the benefits of filing a lawsuit is discovery. Mm. And in this day and age, there's a good chance that somebody wrote an email that they wish they could take back now. Mm. Um, if that exists, uh, they will try really hard to settle this case with Colin. How do you get that? I mean, explain uh, discovery. For just, you know, for the not... For the layperson, yeah. yes. Okay, so when there's a lawsuit, um, you can... Uh, each side is entitled to request that the other side produce evidence related to the subject matter of the lawsuit. So evidence would be they would, uh, a party would ask for any documents in your possessions that relate to the subject matter of the lawsuit, any emails that relate to the subject matter of the lawsuit. Um, you can, the only protection for not turning over that information is attorney-client privilege. So unless there's a communication that was between you and your attorney about legal advice, you're required to turn over the information. So but can you go on a, right. can it be a fishing expedition you know as they say or do you have to have some evidence already of of the of collusion well um you know, it's I mean, sort of a rhetorical question. Of course, you can't go on a right. fishing expedition, and I have not reviewed the papers right. in the in the Kaepernick case, so so I don't have the benefit of of seeing that. But I'm going to assume that his litigation team would not have filed the lawsuit if they didn't have a plausible basis, because they would be sanctioned for filing a lawsuit right. without having a plausible basis. Right. Uh, I think most people 
believe just based on what's out in the public domain, what we've observed, that there should be a sufficient basis just on what we've observed. Right. Yeah, I mean, almost just um, not anecdotally, but um, you know, there, there are 32 teams, mm-hmm. and not one team. I mean, Aaron Rodgers broke his collar. I mean, you know, there have been these things, and nobody, uh, n- nobody reached out. So it just seems on the, on the face of it that you've got a strong case. Uh, speaking of the plantation, you're also a committee. You're a member, you're a member of the NCAA Division One uh, committee, committee on Fractions. And uh, yeah, I've covered college sports like forever. But I think explain, number one, what is the uh, NCAA Division One Committee on Infractions? What exactly is it? What do you- so um, I do not work for the NCAA, so I always have to clarify that when I say I'm a member of the NCAA Division I Committee on Infractions. We're all volunteers, and the Committee on Infractions is the dis- disciplinary hearing body for all rules violations for the NCAA. So whenever those news reports come out of someone is being charged with an en- violating the NCAA rules and the NCAA enforcement has brought allegations against them, the body that decides that case is the Committee on Infractions. We have 24 members, and we pull from that seven members to hear each case. And then sometimes someone of those seven can't sit on the case because of a conflict of interest. So mm. I'm an independent member of that committee, which means I don't work for any of the member institutions of the NCAA or any of the college conferences, but there are also members who do work for the institutions and the conferences. How, how, do you, how does one get on a committee like that? Um, you're nominated uh, by someone in the, uh, in the uh, atmosphere, <laughs> I guess, the ecosystem of the NCAA, someone who has influence with them. Uh, in my case, I received a call one day uh, about four years ago saying that my name had been put in for nomination. I didn't know that I had been nominated. And they, uh, the person who called me asked me if I was interested. I asked her to explain what it would involve. Um, I do a lot of uh, arbitration work as an attorney, so this was another type of arbitration hearing officer type of role. And I, it's in sports. I wanted to ha- make a difference because because I thought it was very important to have a person of color and a female as part of that group. So I said yes. How, how diverse is it? How, how diverse, uh, you know, I mean, that's a whole other issue of diversity within the NCAA. And not just diversity, but black people. I mean, you have to be very specific. Well, how diverse is is the the uh, Committee on Infractions? And you deal with a lot of sports. I mean, people just think it's like basketball, football. But there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of stuff you deal with, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we've had, so to answer your first question, I believe we've recently added some new people who I haven't seen yet. <laughs> so, Jamal, so I believe there are two of us, um, wow. but there may, I think. Out there of 24. May, yeah, but right. I think we've just added a few uh, a few more people. So there were three of us, and one of the, one of us resigned. And uh, in protest? Or? No, 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 no. He he wanted to. He was working at a law firm, and um, you know you can't take college cases if you're on the committee for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. So um, he was going to a law firm where he would uh, the firm would be taking college cases. So he was conflicted out. So mm-hmm. what was the second part of your question? How. How different is it 
how different is are the issues that you take and the way you get to a conclusion differ from what the general public? In other words, if you're a University X fan and you get put on three years probation, people cry bloody murder, you know, because it's unfair and all that. Do you think the process is pretty fair? Of course it's fair. I mean, in the sense that, well, it depends on, I think the process is fair in the sense that it's it's like any, it's like jury duty, right? You have um, facts laid in front of you, you're given what the rules are, and then you're, you're asked to decide whether these facts constitute a violation of the rules. So uh, much to the chagrin of the general public, we don't make the rules, we just have to interpret whether the facts that we're given impact um, uh, constitute a violation of the rules and the one of the questions you asked me were before is do we see just basketball and football no we see as I've had golf cases I've had track and field cases soccer um, you know it's it's a whatever it's whatever sport if there's an allegation that that is moved forward that there's a violation of NCAA rules then then you get a case and there, obviously a lot's been going on uh, recently, or, or you know, all the time with different cases. Most recently, the uh, North Carolina case. Is that the type of case that that you would uh, be on the committee for? Um, I was on that panel, and we have a rule at the uh, the committee on infractions that once the chair gives the press conference about the decision, that we are unable to make further comment about the case. But I did sit on that case. And and just How going back they to get all. <laughs> I mean, <it's> just <laughs> go, <laughs> go, go. You you mentioned we we, t- we talked about, about Houdini. <laughs> We talked about diversity. Uh, you mentioned um, at, at a certain point there were two of twenty-four uh, minorities or black people on the on the panel. Uh, what what difference does that make? I mean, what what's the what's the big deal? Like, why why do you why why is there a need for diversity in, in that type of? Uh, well, let me just clarify. I said that as far as I knew, right now there were possible uh, there were at least two. Uh, black people on the African Americans on the panel. Mm-hmm. There are other okay. minorities. Uh, former U.S. Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez is on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other. W- there are women. Mm-hmm. You know, other women as well. So uh, we do have. Uh, you know, other diversity on the committee. Um, what difference diversity makes is that um, when you're taking evidence and testimony of coaches and uh, student athletes and sports administrators, uh, obviously you're assessing credibility and you're interpreting the language that they're using and the words that they're saying. Um, I believe that depending on your background, you receive and interpret that information differently. And um, so I would say, so diversity on the Committee on Infractions is very important, but also uh, a lot of law firms are doing the investigations related to scandals that occur. And uh, in the legal profession, we're always critical of law firms not having enough diversity. So an important aspect of the information that we even get to see is what those investigations that the campuses um, undertake uh, 
bring forward. And so if the individuals from law firms doing the investigations are not sufficiently diverse, then they're going to interpret things that are said in interviews in a particular way. Uh, and same thing with the enforcement staff, the enforcement staff of the NCA, they're the arm that decides whether or not to bring the allegations forward. And there is, uh, uh, I, you know, there is, I don't know the total number on the enforcement staff of minorities, but they do have minorities on their staff, um, uh, you know, not necessarily on every case. So, um, and it's the same thing if you're dealing with an issue that involves uh, females or a female sport. If you don't have someone who can understand the perspective of a female on that in a particular situation, sometimes that might make a difference as well. Right. Our guest has been the wonderful uh, Jill Pilgrim. She's the uh, uh, founder and president of the Center for the Protection of Athletes' Rights. When you founded that, you were Jill Pilgrim. Now, she is Jill E. Pilgrim. She's the acting acting executive director and general counsel for the Track and Field Athletes, Associ <laughs> Athletes Association. Uh, Jill, before we, before we let you go, um, just just um, kind of, and I, there's so much I want to ask you about. We know you can't get into detail about certain things. So I won't she can't know. tell us anything. She can't tell us anything. Not even her middle name. I, I, knew, <laughs> I knew we were in trouble when we started. What does the E stand for? Can I, at, at, at any rate. Uh, well, I take that back. She's actually told us a lot. She, this, well, if, you listen between, if you listen between the lines, you right. know, you'll know. Just, just nothing specific about specific cases. <laughs> yeah, like North Carolina. We can't ask you about no, things no. like that. And how the hell do they get off? And do any of these guys know about Africa? You know, I was gonna say, <laughs> where's where's Liberia? I was gonna say like when they like, during the Final Four, it, that would have been like if I was like on the other team, right. I would have like, you know, I would when we brought the ball down, I would have said, all right, let's run Liberia, let's run Nigeria. Then the guy said, well, we I, I knew it could say out loud because I knew y'all didn't know where they are, <laughs> where the countries are. Anyway, Jill can't even laugh at this. So anyway, listen, Jill, uh, <laughs> what 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 sort of initiatives do you have coming up? Um, you know, uh, in the next I don't know, year, is there something that your um, that that your group, that the uh, track and field athletic athlete association, is this a case that you're working on, or is there something else that people should be beginning to think about that maybe is not on our radar yet? Well, I hope you will have me back to discuss these issues more fully. But one of the the big issues that uh, Olympic and and track and field athletes in general have deal with marketing rights and sponsorship and uh, limitations that are put mm. on them to earn money uh, related to uh, Olympic sponsors. And that's a huge issue that we're tackling. Too long to go into at this point in time, but I hope you'll invite me back to discuss that further. Absolutely. Let me ask you one thing. Um, what do you, this is now, you were a sprinter. Now, now where, you grew up where? I grew up in London, uh, Canada, and uh, New York She's City. one of the exotic sisters. <laughs> in London. How did that happen? Well, my parents are from uh, a colonized country, Guyana, uh, was a former British colony, and my they emigrated to London, mm. and uh, so my sister and I were born there. Mm. And after my parents split, uh, we spent time uh, on different continents mm. with uh, my parents who had moved to different continents. We also lived in Africa for a couple of years because my mm. mother worked for the Nigerian government after independence. So, mm. so yes, I grew up traveling and uh, had a very interesting 
international experience. How did you get to Princeton? No, but what did you run first? Where did you where did you make your name as a high school runner? Well, I started in junior high school in Canada, and I won the junior national championships at the 100 meters when mm. I was 15 or 16 years old. And uh, that got me an entree onto the Superior Adams Track Club in Brooklyn, New York, which had several Olympic athletes, Cheryl Toussaint mm. uh, among them, and uh, Lorna Ford, Diane Dixon. Mm. Um, so I tried to get on the club before I won the Canadian Nationals, and uh, wouldn't have me, but once I won the nationals, I got a call. So, oh, okay. <laughs> hey, you gotta win, baby. That's, that, that, that's what it's all, boil, all boils down to. You, know, you got a nice smile. So, then, so how did you get to Princeton? I was always a good student academically. My parents were much more concerned with my academics than my track and field. So I applied to a bunch of Ivies and I got into a whole bunch of them. So that was mm. good. And how well did you do? I mean, not how well did you do, but what did you, what did you, what was your athletic career like at Princeton? Well, you know, what was interesting is I entered Princeton a few years after Title IX was passed mm. uh, and also a few years after Princeton um, integrated women. Uh, it was previously an all-male university. So when I arrived on campus, even though I was a track star, there was no formal women's track team. Uh, and one of the impetuses for me attending Princeton was that the men's track coach knew my my club track coach and they wanted to uh, start the women's team and they wanted to have some good athletes on the team to get the support of the university to get funding so um, I we were club sport for two years and even though I qualified for nationals in my freshman year I couldn't attend because we, we weren't an official team we had mm. no budget we didn't have any uniforms you know so um, my first two years I did very well it was um, you know, Eastern Ivy League uh, track and field competition was uh, like practice for me. <laughs> mm. uh, <laughs> so like I mean, I was I was trash. on a pro team, and right. I you uh, know, and I went to like <laughs> you know, right. it was like you know, it was practice for me. But um, <laughs> but as I as as time went on, and as more uh, universities and college added track programs, it became very difficult, right? So um, I only made, uh, once we did have an official team, I made nationals once, uh, only in the 4x4 relay. So um, it was tough, you know. Um, I know that uh, I received, I, I don't remember which schools they were, but uh, there was some interest from other schools for me uh, going into college on a track scholarship. My mother wouldn't even consider those letters. She said, you're going to an Ivy League institution. I had been schooled outside of the U.S., so I didn't really know what that meant, but that it wasn't even you weren't a going to Georgia, or LSU. right? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going <laughs> was to a track powerhouse, well, Tennessee State, or any place yeah. like it, that. It worked out well. Yeah. Yes, it did. <laughs> I did. I, I went on to attend Columbia Law School, and it, right. it served me well. Right. Well, what do you think of Flojo? Uh, there's a movement afoot. Um, it, first of all, do you think there's a movement afoot to um, to overturn a lot of uh, a lot of records? set in that generation, not just by Flojo, whose record in the 200 and the 100 still stands. It will probably maybe never be broken. I'm just curious, as, a, as an athlete, and then maybe as somebody who deals with these kind of issues, what do you think of Flojo? Do you think that those records should stand? So um, 
I was formerly the general counsel of USA Track and Field, mm-hmm. and um, I handled a lot of the doping controversies. Um, I was not the general counsel when Flojo uh, competed. Um, there has been a, a, a lot of suspicion about uh, drug use and proven drug use uh, for decades, uh, in the s- starting in the 60s up to the present day. Um, I don't really have a position right now on whether uh, records should be rewritten or you should restart the, the button. What I can tell you, I've attended enough uh, World Anti-Doping um, Agency conferences, scientific conferences on doping in sport, and uh, what is always stated is that the cheaters are always one step ahead of the testers. Um, so if that's always going to be the case, uh, you know, restarting the button, I don't know if that accomplishes anything. If you, you know, say we're going to reset everything, um, are right. you going to reset everything in baseball? I right. mean, you know. <laughs> right, because the new records will be made by the cheaters who are yeah, a step it, ahead anyway. It, it begs the question that, that uh, you know, when you're right, whatever, you're not, it's not like you're the only, I mean, you're in an environment where you're beating people who are kind of doing the same thing arguably that you were doing. It was more like you were the only person who was doing their errors. I mean, um, let me say this about drug testing and, uh, and Olympic athletes uh, and, and athletes in general. Uh, we're, we're using imprecise scientific testing methods and techniques to test athletes and then calling some of them out as dopers. Mm. Uh, we need to have a very credible Uh, scientific study done on athletes Uh, you know I'd love it to be track and field athletes over a long period of time uh, so that the methods that are used for testing can be formalized and can become expert um, systems for testing because what's happening now is depending on which lab you go to they're Mm -hmm. using different techniques so you can't trust necessarily a positive uh, a positive from one laboratory is not necessarily the same as a positive from another laboratory and if you follow WADA they're decertifying labs around the world every other month so there's a bigger issue here it's not just it's career ruining to put suspicion on someone that they have used drugs uh, to gain a competitive advantage and so if if you're going to take that higher toll on someone's career and earning capacity then the testing techniques that are being used have to be scientifically valid wow and that's astonishing because Mm -hmm. i've never heard that and you assume you know, a drug test, you assume almost like yeah. it's a DNA test, like it's a 99 point. And it's point, not. You know, so right. I mean, that, yeah. A drug test is not a drug test, it's a drug test. They, they, they have, they don't have standardized uh, procedures for every laboratory. Um, and that's, that's a problem. And they haven't done, you know, before the FDA allows drugs to be put out into the world uh, or the United States for consumption, they do blind studies, double blind studies, peer review, all that kind of, of serious uh, scrutiny is not being given to these uh, sport drug tests that they're rolling out, just like coming up with something, and then the next day they're, you know, they're using it. Yeah, like in, in the wake of the Russian thing, I wanted to ask you about Russia. I mean, people want to declare that the wicked wish is dead, 
And as you said, the Wicked Witch is not. I mean, they're always like a step, uh, a step, uh, a step ahead. And I, so, what did you think of, of the Russian, uh, of the Russian? Um, so I'm just pulling you into this deep. <laughs> but but I mean, but this is this is real. I mean, I mean, what did you? What, what can you share with about how you felt about? It? And I'm asking you this as someone who, who you're not a Pharisee. I mean, you've dealt with this. This is like your, you know, you 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 know about this stuff. But also as a competitor, you know, um, who's run clean and all that stuff. Um, that's why I was, I was asking you in that context. Um, do you think that with the whole Russian disclosure that we're kind of done? And, 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 yeah. Well, at the, com- the Marquette National Sports Law Institute conference uh, that I attended last Friday, Richard McLaren, the person who wrote the Russian investigation report, um, presented. So uh, I can report to you from what he said and what I've read of reading the report. My own impression is that um, I, I assume that he and his colleagues did good did good work. He's a credible person. I'm sure they they found the evidence that they said that they found. Um, if you follow WADA notices uh, on doping cases, you will notice that Russia is not the only country where. Uh, positive doping cases are are being found. So doping is happening all over the world. Uh, From a track and field perspective, uh, especially on behalf of the Track and Field Athletes Association, we really want good drug testing uh, techniques to be put in place to oust the dopers so that the rest of the athletes can get on with running clean and winning the races that they should be winning instead of losing them to dopers. That's what we want. We want a clean sport and unfortunately a lot of the times when track and field gets attention it's because of a doping positive not because of the success of an athlete. Let me ask you this um, and I guess it's obviously just some opinion but you know, you just referenced uh, track and field and how, you know, a lot of the publicity that comes your way um, is based on doping. And it, it, the perception is that it's a bigger problem in track and field than these other sports like football or baseball. No, baseball, probably not, but football, basketball. Um, and do you think it's it's the same problem in track and field as it is in other sports? And it's just... It's just that track and field is is sort of picked on in that in that sense. Oh yeah, I definitely feel that track and field is picked on more. But on the other hand, I, I guess we could say we're somewhat responsible for that because back in the wake of the Ben Johnson uh, sole positive. Uh, It was the athletes like Edwin Moses and others in track and field who spoke up and said, we're just really tired of all the doping allegations. Evelyn Ashford ran for years against the East Europeans, and, you know, God bless her. She did so well, given what she was contending with. Um, So we started in track and field in the United States, the first out-of-competition anti-doping program, um, which is the foundation of all the sport drug testing programs around the world now, including the WADA and USADA. So we started it, and when you drug test, you're going to catch people. And when you catch people, it gets the, the, the press, the track press would, you know, it's salacious information. 
information. So-and-so tested positive. So in a way, by, by doing the right thing, we shot ourselves in the foot as well uh, because then the focus became a lot about who's testing positive now. So the good thing is we did a good service to sport in general, which is creating the framework for out-of-competition drug testing. And uh, however, you know, how do you execute it in a way that is going to be um, effective across all sport? I don't think it's more drug use in track and field than any other sport. I think we've done in track and field because we've been testing the longest and the more co most comprehensively that we're better at it. Um, but we've got to get away from a system where the laboratories are using different standards. So what happened when track and field started out of competition testing and a lot of drug tests is that we would publicize our positives. But you, if you lived in a country that couldn't afford to have a drug testing program, you never got any news of a positive because they weren't getting tested. So there could have been lots of drug use, but you never heard about it. So that's, that's the problem. If you test, you're going to find positives. Less than 1% of the athletes that we tested ever tested positive mm. but you wouldn't know that from the the press the media reports so it's 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 unfortunate but we did the right thing it was the right thing to do because you don't ever want an athlete who's clean to be told that in order to succeed you have to use drugs that's not the, what we want to happen how clean do you think we are in the United States, I mean, you think we're, I mean, I, mean, I know it's like, well, how do you, what do you say, 10 you know, <laughs> I mean, but relative to the, that, well, do, do you, do you think that we're, we're more drug free than the rest of the world? I, I have no way of knowing that. I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you said, you said, you know, like you said less than 1% of the people that you tested, uh, you know, turned out positive. Uh, during the era that I worked at track and field, so, you know. So that's a small percent. I mean, obviously. It's a very small percent, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Our guest has been, well, that's another show. Our guest has been, our guest has been uh, Jill Pilgrim, who's the uh, founder and president of the Center for the Protection of Athletes' Rights, and she's the acting executive director and general counsel of Track and Field Athletes Association. Jill, thank you so, so, so much for coming and sharing this, this insight, and we will bring you back. No question about it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.